Welcome to the Build, Finance, Grow podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Bowman. Today, I am talking to Ryan Culp. Ryan is the founder of Fork Equity, a micro-acquisitions fund investing in digital businesses and applications. Ryan is a bit of an interesting character in that he's had a broad range of experience with both startup, marketing, and development. He's a really great guest for getting into the details of buying and turning around digital opportunities. We talk about why small acquisitions and not larger transactions, the key to targeting the right business for acquisition, how to evaluate opportunities, and what projects are more scalable than others. Ryan mentions a lot of details in this episode, so be sure to check out the show notes on buildfinancegrow.com. Also, if you'd like to actually ask your own questions to the upcoming guests, on the podcast, consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. I post a little message on there asking people what are their questions that they would like answered from our guests to give everyone the opportunity to join in on the discussion. And with that, let's get to the podcast. Ryan, good to have you on the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me back, I guess. It's been a while. Yeah, back. Well, this is second time is the charm. We had a bit of a false start on the on the first recording time, but it's good that we we got there in the end. First question out of the gate. I encourage everyone who's listening to actually check out your website and look at your story because it is both long and actually quite fun to read through the history of 55 different jobs that you've had. But when you meet people, I suppose at language exchanges and in Seoul or something similar. What's the quick pitch of your background? How do you put yourself forward to other people? I've still been trying to figure out how to do this because all I want to tell people is my name is Ryan. I drink iced coffee and, you know, I like like ghosts and, you know, playing Battlefield. But I find that maybe it's partially because of our age. So I'm 32. And as you get older, it's just natural there's going to be more layers to your onion and you know when you try to give someone a simple answer you have the opposite effect i think that you might intend and they say oh actually like well you must be doing something else so like for example i'm living in korea right now and as you mentioned i go to language exchanges i meet a lot of strangers i don't really have a natural network the way i did in new york i'm also a foreigner so there's already this sort of intrigue of like why are you in <laughs> why are you in our country And then on top of that, there's the layer of what do foreigners typically do in Korea? They teach English or they sit around waiting to destroy North Korea. Those are the two jobs, soldier and teacher. I'm neither of those. And without intention, that creates a lot of like confusion around what I do. And I find that the less I say, the more confusing it is, which should be the opposite. But I guess my elevator pitch to people is I'm here pursuing music. And I used to be in tech. And then I say that and it's like, well, what kind of visa do you have? What do you mean you're pursuing music? How do you have money to pay bills? And so then I kind of have to inevitably answer a few more questions. And I say like, well, you know, I have these like projects that kind of make money and I don't have to work on them. And then, you know, it very quickly, I would say devolves into like, does it look like I'm bragging or something? But that's that's not my intention at all. I just want to say like, what are you up to? And I just want to learn Korean or whatever the case may be. But in this country, I would say more so than 
let's say the United States, if you're in the, you know, Manhattan and you go meet someone for coffee and they're like, what are you up to? And you're like, well, I just quit my job and I'm taking some time now. They're like, oh, right on. (laughs) And you say that in Korea and they're like, what do you mean? Like, what? So there's like these certain standards and maybe not standards, but sort of expectations, molds that you fit into, that you ought to fit into. And I don't know, I don't, I don't want to blame all of this on Korea, I'd say that maybe this is more characteristic of just the average person out there that you might sense there are a couple ways to go about life. You're either a student and you're broke or you're working and you're living, you know, under that kind of pressure with your bills. And then maybe you have a family and those are sort of the stages of life. And I've always surrounded myself with people who reject those as the only stages of life, who are constantly reinventing themselves, who are constantly transitioning their careers. So to me, that is normal. But I think being in Korea has reminded me, because again, not to blame this on Korea, but it's reminded me that the average person doesn't really get it. (laughs) I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, the average person doesn't have exposure, I should say, to kind of some of the entrepreneurial lifestyles available. And these are, and I say a word available because these are available to that person. And that's what I've tried to do with my blogging and some of the courses I've created is actually show that, you know, this isn't an exclusive club, you know, having a weird day to day where you don't get up at 6am and go to a job you hate. That's, that's totally approachable and reachable by you and by anyone. There are some levers you have to pull. There is grunt work you have to get through first. There's sort of like some prerequisites, but it's all doable. And I try to be a living example of that. But yeah, to, to again, to go and answer your question, I, I tell people that I, used to be in tech and now I'm doing music and then the confusion ensues. I can really empathize because in the similar situation, you know, having lived in Seoul before as well, you kind of want to get on with the conversation, you know, Mm. you need to give them something. And then unfortunately, sometimes the answers you give lead to you needing to explain (laughs) your entire life story to another person, which is not always comfortable if they're not a stranger. But as you pointed out, I think Korea has a lot of expectations and, and pressures to go down certain straight and narrow paths. So if you're if you don't fit the mold, it definitely mm-hmm. you get a lot of curiosity back, which is not always which is not always nice. You can get tired of it after a while trying to explain. The reason why I ask this is because part of your journey has been changing from a as someone who, as I understand it, didn't code and then began to code, but you also had your roots strongly in marketing. If you think of your overall skill set as a person in business owning the projects that you have, do you see yourself now as, apart from retired, do you see yourself now as an investor or a builder or an initiator or anything? So one thing I've, one lens sort of mental framework I've thought about a lot over the years is applying our, thinking about our skills and then also our actual behaviors, what we do every day as kinetic versus potential energy. And the very little I know about or remember from high school physics about kinetic and potential energy is they always add up to one and they can be different values, 80% and 20%, but they always sort of sum together. And so I sense over the last several years, and this is one of those 2020 hindsight moments where I spent a lot of time in my 20s, just full on kinetic energy, all motion. And then I was able to take a step back when I wasn't, you know, let's say living paycheck to paycheck and do things like read books, go to conferences, you know, spend hours and hours looking on 
looking online at, you know, blog posts by, you know, written nine years ago by some really smart VC or whoever or founder. And during that time, I, I now kind of classify that as my building of potential energy. And over the last couple of years, I've sort of taken turns in a more conscientious way of toggling between, okay, I'm in learning mode now, or I'm in doing mode now. When I'm in learning mode, I'm aggregating new knowledge and experiences, and I'm building that potential energy. And then when I sense that potential energy is sort of on the verge of just bursting or or dissipating, right? Because if you don't apply it, then it sort of goes away, like learning a language or learning an instrument or whatever. Then I say, okay, I have to, I have to make something. It's like a, a moral obligation. And so when I came to Korea, first I was back in this retirement mode. I was doing absolutely nothing, waking up at 2, 3 p.m., playing some video games. I spent most of my effort actually trying to find a PlayStation 5 for at least two months. And then, you know, that got a little bit boring and I started reading books again and all of these ideas started culminating and it was almost like i don't want to be weird and crazy but you know the concept of like no fap and then you have a wet dream it was like that that's really how i operate in terms of entrepreneurial ideas if i do nothing the ideas just start like making love in my head and i have to output something and so then earlier last year, after I had been doing nothing for a few months, got into crypto mining, started a couple businesses, a board game, but now have a film studio. And all of this was sort of just a way to express and put to the test, like, hey, all these ideas, I think, I think, you know, all these, all these strategies or tactics, I think, I think would work to, to grow a small business, will they? So some of, some of this like project stuff that I'm up to is just a way to release that tension. But I do already feel myself, again, not getting burned out. I'm very, very careful with the use of that word. And But just getting to the point where I think, you know what, maybe I need to go back into learning mode. And so even, you know, today, like typically I read a book when I wake up, but today in the last few days, I'm like finding myself reading a book throughout the day, going and sitting at the park, sitting on the Han River, because I just need to go back into absorption mode. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that it's unfortunate that we probably don't have quite the scope to talk about all the things that you're up to outside of the work and, mm. and financial area, because there's a lot of stuff. But it, it's interesting to know that that sort of fuels, it seems like it may fuel, as I understand, you, you're building up this creative potential and then expressing it in the projects that you create. Would that be right? That's right. And, and again, yeah, really to answer that question, I see myself as as just a creator and i don't mean that in like the cool trendy way like we need creators but what i mean is just in a in actually a generic way that you know i've always thought of myself as a pretty creative person i think creativity is combining unlike ideas dissimilar ideas and finding a fusion point to make something that's just naturally interesting and then if you can go the next level and make that something people will pay for then now you can be you know you can find a lot of success in life throughout my career if you want to call it that i've done music, I've done marketing, I've done coding, as you mentioned, but I would say all of it always hinged on one skill or one thing, which was being empathetic to what people care about and what they want. And, and I would say that is a marketing skill. I would say that developers that are sort of like the solo developer that builds a product, I would say they're actually more talented in that marketing department than they are in coding. They just don't know it. And likewise, I think marketers who learn to code, people like me, again, we're always going to have I think put more stock in that aspect of our of our skill stack than than the tactical coding part because you can always hire someone to write code you can't really always hire someone to read consumers minds and that's what we're trying to do 
as creators. And if you do that, you know, you win. Yeah, fantastic. Makes a lot of sense, actually. So zooming out a little bit, you have this new fund that you're currently working with, Fork Equity. And it seems unique in that you've taken a perspective that people should think more of micro acquisitions. How did that strategy come to you as a, as a better way of doing things? I guess it starts with the human natural tendency to do pattern matching. And I'm sure we've both read some of the same books and ideas about how humans are actually quite flawed in this department. We pattern match and find correlations that don't really exist. We find correlations that aren't really causations. But I would say pattern matching is a is a net good, meaning even though sometimes we fail, ultimately it's better to, I think, invest some of our energy looking for patterns than it is ignoring those patterns. And, you know, patterns are a really critical aspect. Pattern matching is a critical component of, of entrepreneurship. I think it's a critical component of probably, you know, raising a kid. You know, you're using empirical evidence to see what seems to work and then doing some variant of that and being very careful when you when you change from, from the norms. And so Fork Equity, our fund, got started because I was working on a, a project, FOMO.com. We still have that in our portfolio now, almost six years later. And we were just pattern matching, you know, if this, then that happens. If you send cold email, then that happens. If you send this type of cold email, then you get that kind of nasty response. And you do that over and over and over again, go down a laundry list of whether it's marketing tactics or product ideas or, you know, what happens if we put the login button on the left side instead of the right top corner, you know, and you just keep building this inventory of patterns and really pattern matching is just a fancy way to say best practices. <laughs> and when you follow best practices, but then you have to figure out which best practices aren't really and, and which areas can I deviate from the norms. Then you've got ideas like the blue ocean strategy and all of this just was sort of, again, I was inhaling learning while doing for several months, maybe about a year starting FOMO. And then we decided, you know, we'd have to take that leap of faith saying, I don't know everything, but I think I know a marginal greater amount than the average person. And your competitor is just the average person. So if you know a little bit more than the average person, that's your edge, right? Like Edward Thorpe, I think the guy that invented card counting, and he even made a machine with Richard Feynman to, to actually beat roulette. They made like one of the first world's mini computers that fit in their pocket. This is decades ago. You know, their whole strategy with card counting and still the strategy is today in, in blackjack is like you get a 2% edge, maybe a 3% edge over the house. So out of every 100 bets, you know, you're slowly over time going to come out on top. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but I think this is super encouraging. This is the good news for aspiring entrepreneurs is that a couple of things. In entrepreneurship, you only have to be right once. So even unlike Edward Thorpe and counting cards where you have to get two wins every 100 hands, you only have to be right once in entrepreneurship. And you can fail unlimited times. And then the second component is that you only need a little bit of an edge. You don't need to be Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg level, brainiac, so much smarter than everyone around you that you don't blend in. You can be otherwise normal in every way. But if you have a little bit of an edge in one aspect, then you got to realize that, wait a second, like I just found a secret to the universe no one else knows and then exploit it. And that's what's that's what we call a successful business, you know, in hindsight. So that was what we sort of was our thesis, I guess, going into fork equity was we think we think we know a couple more things than the average person about growing B2B marketing, SaaS tools, Shopify, JavaScript widgets, 
all of the core of kind of pieces that went into building FOMO, we learned a lot while doing it. And we said, okay, let's be bold and take this assumption and put it to the test and see if we can do it again and again. Because doing anything once, you don't really know. It's not a real, it's one data point. And with one data point, you can't draw a line between it. You can't, you know, match a pattern. So we had to, just like I talked about earlier, we had to try this again and say, okay, here's our process. First, we acquire an app. Then we make it look better. Then we build features that the top customers want. Then we go back to market. And we kept doing that process, refining it as we went, and it continued to work. So now we're at the point where either I'm the luckiest entrepreneur on the planet, which is possible, but you know, statistically unlikely, or we have developed a tiny bit of an edge over the average ways that the average entrepreneur runs their business. And that's allowed us to, A, take companies that weren't doing as well and help them do better, and B, start things from scratch and create value that would have never existed without that effort. Got it. So if I understand the thesis correctly, the idea was you don't necessarily need to have a, a groundbreaking, unique advantage over a competitor. You just need a slight advantage, probably informational or experience. And some people call that, you know, special knowledge. So like if I'm, and if this is, a, I guess, a real life example, although, although I'm not working on a project as a musician, I might have special knowledge about the pain points of going to the studio and recording a song and working with a producer. So if I wanted to start a software company that somehow helps either the musician or the studio or the producer with some aspect of that, that would be my special knowledge that you, maybe a developer marketer who just listens to music, you might not have. So some people call this special knowledge, but the reason I think the little bit of the house advantage is a better analogy and the reason why it only needs to be a small amount is because of what we know about investing in compound interest. So it's not that 1% marginal knowledge above your average competitor is a huge deal. It's that 1% compounded over time. If every single day you're running marketing campaigns and your marketing campaigns are a little bit better than every other campaign, over time that will sort of all work together in concert and suddenly you're going to actually continue learning with that extra bit of insight and that in, those insights then compound. And over time, here's what's really interesting, I think, about competition that no one seems to talk about is that you develop these barriers to entry where there are people who would compete with you, but they don't because they admire you. <laughs> so like hmm. maybe they admire you literally, like they want to be your friends. Maybe they admire you in the sense that they're sort of fearful out of respect for you. And so what you have to realize when you have a successful business, and I can think of a lot of awesome businesses, let's say Zapier.com, many people listening to this know Zapier. A lot of engineers could build Zapier, if this, then that, connect all these apps together. But ostensibly, right, judging by what's been going on the last few years, nobody wants to. <laughs> nobody wants to compete with Zapier. Zapier is a complete product. People love Zapier. The brand seems great. The pricing's fair. Also, once you integrate your own product with Zapier, it's sort of like you're neutering yourself, right? So they have an awesome network effect. Who wants to compete with Zapier? So Zapier's like great competitive advantage is that no one wants to compete with them. So they don't have to try to fight hundreds of competitors, like some businesses, they actually prevented the formation of hundreds of competitors. And I think that's the sort of thing I want to be doing with 
with product and marketing is preventing people from wanting to compete. And I think also when, when you do that, in the very long term, the fewer competitors a business has, within reason, obviously, we're not trying to abdicate you know, total monopolies or whatever, but when there are fewer competitors per business, with the same number of entrepreneurs, that means we have more awesome businesses. We have more awesome products and services. It's a huge bug when a ton of entrepreneurs are attacking the same problem. And you're thinking, what are the hundreds of problems that they're not attacking? So in, in this long, maybe twisted way I'm trying to describe now, when you do marketing really well, so many people benefit besides your, your pocketbook because you're actually encouraging would-be entrepreneurs who, are, who would maybe get into your business to go solve another problem. And then now that becomes mutually beneficial. Getting to the micro part of the micro acquisitions. So what you're saying is actually by breaking up the opportunity instead of one large one and going to, I guess, several small ones, you're increasing scale of learning because you would learn on one app which what can be applied to the others you know you mentioned the email techniques it can apply to others is that right as well i'd say there are a few components to why we call this micro acquisitions fork equity the fund as well as our course microacquisitions.com first it started out of necessity right my track record was i was had a one hit wonder you know i'd worked at some startups that were venture funded i'd done an okay job there i guess you know, none of them had big exits. Some of them are still around. Some of them failed. Some of them exited. It's mixed bag of results. So my best and only sort of track record was that I was the founder of a company that was growing. But again, there's a lot of instances where that happens. And then, you know, the company later fails or the founder can't do it twice. And so the foundation of doing this fund and buying other companies and trying again, out of necessity, we needed to make smaller bets. We didn't have a lot of personal funds. We didn't feel comfortable trying to raise a lot of investor funds without a track record. So we started small for that reason, I would say primarily, but also we started small and have remained in that range where we look for smaller companies because there are different needs and day-to-day activities required of companies at different stages. You know, smaller companies, they need to figure out like, how do we get more you know, reviews for our product? How do we get the first hundred or thousand customers? Is our email showing up in spam or not? Like these are, these are small business problems. And so I like solving those kinds of problems because again, you, you have an opportunity to pattern match. If you continue to move upscale or up market in your, your business targets, fine, you're going to learn all new things, but you're always going to be, again, in that absorbing potential energy mode. And that has a big disadvantage of not being able to apply the patterns and best practices that you discover. So now we're at the point where if we identify an app of a certain size in a certain industry or a certain tech stack, there's a lot of things that we're very comfortable with now, we can jump in and make meaningful improvements very quickly, sort of like with our eyes closed and a hand tied behind our back. And that's the benefit of scale. That's the benefit, you know, the quote unquote, knowing what you're doing and having experience. When you're always trying to do something new, sure, maybe your day-to-day life is a little more exciting, but you're robbing yourself of the ability to apply insights. And when you do that over and over again, I think it's a little bit risky because someone else is going to start competing with you who does have those insights. So Micro started at micro because it had to, but we learned through that process, sort of through the back door that actually by doing this over and over again, even though now we can go a little bit bigger, it's a little bit more fun. It's more comfortable. And I think we're able to de-risk each opportunity 
because each one looks closer to the one before it than it does different. Yeah, can really empathize with that particular idea because, and it makes a lot of sense, the issues that a, a completely fresh product will have versus an established leader in the space are completely different, even though it's the same product. And as an example, someone who might be familiar with e-commerce could look at a store of a similar size that they've worked with and say, oh, they're doing this wrong, they're doing that wrong, they're doing this wrong, just fix, fix, fix. But if they had to look at Amazon, the ideas of things that they would need to be fixed are completely different, different mm-hmm. scale, much, not necessarily harder, I suppose, if you're aware of what how to solve those issues. But as you're saying, the more experience you get in that sort of segment, the more of those insights that you basically bank up that you can roll out on the next project. Very cool. Tell us a little bit more about starters versus growers. So I saw this in, in part of your explanation of the, the microacquisitions course that you have. And after that, I realized kind of too late that I'm actually a bit of a grower more than I am a starter. The great irony of of having two podcasts and a, and a site. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about this idea. Well, first of all, so the, yeah, the context here is I, I mentioned this term starter versus grower in a, like you mentioned, a, uh, a video just overviewing our course, our microacquisitions course. And I sort of set it off the hip because this is a, a paradigm, a way that I've thought about entrepreneurs for a few years now. But when I said it and, and the video came out and people started commenting on it like you are now, I realized that this struck a nerve and it reminded me of the whole fundamental reason why we should be making courses in the first place, taking courses and making courses. is because you know something that is not obvious to other people. Something that's obvious to you, other people would happily pay to know, to learn about. That is fundamentally why all of us need to think of ourselves as teachers as well as students. And this is not, you know, and not restrict ourselves to just people in white lab coats and certain pedigrees from being able to quote unquote teach us things. And so that idea that you're a starter or a grower basically means how it sounds. So people who are starters in my context are people who want to break code on a new app from scratch and do a whiteboard brainstorm session and spend several months getting that up and running and getting their first beta user, alpha users, beta users, fixing all the bugs and all of that. And people who are growers are people who would say, you know, that's sort of tedious for me. That is uh, maybe too risky for me. I don't know if anyone will ever use or buy our product just because we spend months making it. I would rather hop into the driver's seat of something that at least kind of works, you know, has some customers. Might have problems, but at least whatever they currently offer is sufficient enough for some people. So I characterize those two almost personas, not as a human, like your ENTJ, but uh, your entrepreneurial persona as starter versus grower. And many, many people have contacted me or taken our course and mentioned that that was the line that got them thinking that maybe they should give this strategy a try. And even what you just said that you realize you're too late, that's also, I think, characteristic of this idea that when someone, it clicks for them and they think, well, you know, maybe I should I should be growing something, They the next emotion or sentiment is that I wish I knew this earlier. So first of all, I, you know, to me, there's there's no like too late. If if you have your health and you have your mental health mostly, mostly, then you're good to go. But you know, that was through my own years of observations of starting things, and then either giving up on them or they didn't do as well as I had hoped for, and I was battling the idea of you know sunk cost fallacy and all the work I put into it. Should I keep beating a dead horse or not? Should I go on to the next thing? And you get really conflicted because you have on one hand this advice, this internal voice and the advice you hear from peers that 
you should keep experimenting. So there's, therefore you should move on to the next thing. And then you have this other advice in your head that's sort of like telling you that that story of the guy who's who's mining underground and he's so close to the gold and you're looking at the cross and you're like, how close? But he doesn't know he was really close. And so you really don't, it's one of these total, it's this paradox of like, I don't know what the right answer is. Do I keep going? Is this one of those, like the only way out is through situations and I need to keep going and I'm going to have a success story later because I pivoted and kept going? Or do I need to say that I gave up and that was the strategy because it led me to the next thing? And it's really, it becomes an existential question, I find, when you when you battle between them. And I, and I think it's, again, really helpful to choose a conviction and run with it. And so putting this in the frame of you're a starter or you're a grower allows people to finally stop racking their brain with that existential question and just choose one and go for it. And what's really cool, of course, about being a grower and saying, hey, this is what I think I should be doing with my entrepreneurial time and effort, buying a small company that already works and then running it, you will get this wave of satisfaction in the first moment because you now have a successful company that you're operating. And it can take months or years or never to get to that aha moment as, as a starter. And you know, we could debate all day whether it's more satisfying if there's a greater release of endorphins because you started it. But ultimately, you know, when you have something that works under your belt, under your your purview, that's going to give you an instant boost of confidence, of self-belief, which I think is ironically the main ingredient missing from more people being successful business owners is not necessarily just tactical skills because you kind of learn that as you go. But it's just that they don't believe they can. So good luck, you know, starting something that may or may not work that probably won't work, right? Many, many times you'll start something and it won't work and start something and it won't work. Good luck getting that self-confidence from years of that battle when you could spend a fraction of the time and ultimately a fraction of the resources, depending on how you value your time, buying something that already works, realizing on day one, you weren't an idiot. (laughs) You know, you were capable of Running, a, running and hopefully growing a successful company. You just didn't have the right company until this moment. And so through our course, students, alumni who have been gracious enough to report back that, hey, I bought a company and here's how it's going. It's been really, really cool to see people's kind of lives transform. I mean, one f- new friend in, in Korea, he took the course. He was in the States. He moved to Korea around the time I moved to Korea. Total coincidence. We met up for lunch. He had bought a website for a few thousand bucks, and now the website was making several thousand dollars a month. Huge win for him. He was able to quit his job and just do some freelance consulting, moved to Korea from, I think, California. And there's a lot of stories like that and more and more coming out of this community, not because of me, but because this idea that I'm trying to share with people, the starter versus grower and the the confidence boost that you get when you have something that works on day one. Yeah, it's it's a super interesting insight, I think, because there's probably a temptation out there to view yourself as as being a bit of a failure as an entrepreneur if you can't start. But there are lots of cases where people who have entrepreneurial talent, when they come across the right company, as you said, it's not a starter, it's a grower, they actually really hit a home run. I think that's as part of what's been your story, as I understand it. What's also interesting about this is I realized you could even apply the same 
modes of thinking to opportunities that already exist. So to reconsider the opportunity as if you were a starter or reconsider the opportunity as if you're a grower can give some fresh ideas. But was there something you wanted to add onto the, the previous point? I guess maybe a little bit of a, of a rant, you know, when you, it, when you think about all of the different sizes of businesses being acquired, you know, so like there's like a food chain, Fork Equity is buying the smaller guys and then other people are buying the things that we are selling and the things that we are selling are, are even way too small for someone else to be buying. And so everyone's looking for this different target. You know, every fund will sort of say, here's our minimum profit target, or we look for businesses with this much revenue. And again, you can correlate the, the revenue tier of a company with sort of the set of problems and challenges that are going to be pretty common in that, in that type of company. So the very small company, you know, figuring out a, a SOP for customer support, right? A, a larger company is going to have all that figured out, but you're going to now figure out like, how do we make our customer support only 5% of our, our monthly expenses instead of 12%? So you're going to be figuring out new challenges regarding the same department. But, you know, one almost, I guess, bit of encouragement to people who are trying to figure out like, where would I hop in and, and be successful? You know, one group of people that I've almost never really liked too much with very few exceptions are the bigger private equity firm type of people. And the reason why is because most of them have never started a company or sold anything in their life. But somehow these people are able to buy companies for sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars or more and actually grow and operate and grow the companies, not through skills I have, you know, marketing and sales and empathizing with the customer, but through cost management, spreadsheets, <laughs> a little bit of biz dev, it's kind of incredible to see. So on one hand, I don't like this, this group of people. I don't really respect them as entrepreneurs because they're not. On the other hand, it just goes to show that every single company needs has a different set of needs to get it to the next level. And there is a type of company that literally to grow, it needs people who are good at Microsoft Excel. It, that's wild to me, right? I, I can't imagine hopping into a company that that's what we need to make a difference. I jump into companies that need like, the homepage to look better, right? And that's something I'm very well-equipped to do. But the point is, the, the encouraging thing here is that all of us have different skills. And so you don't, you shouldn't think of it in this binary sense of like, do I have the skills to grow a company? It's like, well, it depends what type of company we're talking about. Maybe you absolutely have the right skills. And even if all you know how to do is Google your Google Sheets, apparently that's a viable skill for turning around some types of companies. If all you know how to do is business development and, and literally cold call with the phone sales, you know, there are probably businesses that could benefit a lot from that skill. If all you know how to do is illustrations, you know, hey, again, I'm being a little simplistic here. All of us have more than one skill. But if your specialty, regardless of your specialty, there's probably a business that would benefit from that specialty. Yeah, very encouraging, like you said, at some point. Google Sheets is needed. All, all roads lead to Google Sheets. And, Google uh, Sheets, unfortunately or fortunately. So. <laughs> cool. So coming back to fork equity, for people thinking about building their own portfolios, how would you encourage them to see the entire process from finding the opportunity to actually closing it? What do you see as the typical roadmap? Well, we think of buying a company in, in six stages, with the first couple being forming your thesis and developing a sourcing strategy. You know, I think first and foremost, you got to realize that there are many, many people who try to find, buy, grow companies for a living. This is all they do all day. 
and they still aren't very good at it. And what I mean by that is they're still not very good at literally finding the deals, right? So you could have all the skills and all the resources you need to grow a company, to pay for the company, but you can't find the company. This is a huge problem. This is why we have companies like microacquire.com. And of course, we've got flippa.com and many others trying to, to chip away at this problem. How do you literally find these companies? And then once you find them, there's the whole bag of issues with <laughs> dealing with founder personalities and founder disillusionment with valuations and all of that stuff. But first and foremost, you have to find it. And it takes a lot of effort to find it. There are a lot of things in life we can do by accident. I can almost accidentally buy a new car, right? I'm like watching TV one day and I see a commercial for the new Ford Bronco. And I'm like, oh, the Bronco is so cool because Jack from Lost had one in the flashbacks. And like, I've always thought that car was neat. And next thing you know, I'm at the dealership buying a Bronco. Same thing can happen for a house. Same thing happens every year to almost all of us when we get a new iPhone or iPad or whatever. There are a lot of impulse buys, even expensive impulse buys, Companies is not one of them. It is very, very difficult. These are like how to, these are like finding finding a unicorn. You can spend all day and still come up empty-handed. So the first step that we encourage people in the course, and even if I'm just chatting casually, is you have to make a concerted effort for this to happen. You cannot just say, "Hey, I'm open to buying a company." That would be that would be cool. That would be nice. You can't just have your skill set and some money in the bank. You actually have to go out and look for these deals because if you wait for them to punch you in the face, they probably won't. And the ones that do won't be, most likely won't be very good deals. So the first step is setting aside the time and setting up tooling, you know, email alerts, accounts, sometimes paid accounts so that you can get access to better deal flow. Obviously, things like Twitter and networking are all useful. There's really no one magic bullet, no one source, no single source by which to find a deal. But the first ingredient is that you have to put in put in the effort. At Fork Now, we've, we're what, five years in? We started January 2017. We get some inbound deal flow, but they're rarely you know, right for our thesis and interest. So even after five years of brand building and we have thousands of people in our communities and our courses and our, our forums... We have kind of quite the advantage in terms of the network in that sense. And we still are pretty much just doing deals that we find ourselves by hand. So that's that's step one. And if someone I think isn't, it's also a great, it's also really fortunate that this is step one, because this is the step that costs nothing except your time. You don't have to put money down. You don't have to start an entity. You don't really have to do anything. This is all sort of like a mental exercise and it's window shopping. Right. So it's going to the mall on Saturday and just walking around. At the end of it, you didn't have to spend any money, but you got some exercise in. Same thing applies for buying companies. You just have to start looking at them. And if you don't have the energy or the interest to look at hundreds of prospectus, listings, website homepages, scroll up and down, scratch your head. What do, what do these people do? Who are their competitors switching over to Google, kind of looking for alternatives? If you don't have the energy to do that, that's okay. That's great. You know, maybe this isn't for you and you didn't have to spend any money to come to that conclusion. So you mentioned sourcing the opportunities for having a thesis. I think that's a very interesting one. Is this what you meant before when you described fork equity thesis is that, you know, we can find these opportunities where we have special knowledge to very quickly add a lot of value in a predefined space that we know very well and where the insights that we gain will be compounded across our portfolio. Of opportunities. Is this what you mean by thesis? I'd say the thesis, your investment thesis is the articulation of the insights you have as they relate to tangible things like an industry or a tech stack or a size of a company. 
So it's one of those things where it's, it's a conviction and convictions are not words. They're sort of a combination of chemicals and feelings and experiences and whatever, but you have to do your best to put words to those convictions so that it can be shared with others for, for scalable purposes. So the best representation we have of that, the best manifestation of my convictions, you can call that a thesis. And another benefit of the thesis is that it becomes sort of, as much as it becomes a do buy list, like look for these types of companies, it also becomes a do not buy, a you know avoid XYZ. And that's actually sort of the strategy we encourage students to take. We say, look, you might have a lot of interest. You might be interested in bars. You might be interested in apps. You might be interested in in mobile games. So of course, it's very scary to start saying, you know, or, or which one do you want to, to go for if you want to go for all of them? So instead we say, okay, take the inverted approach. What are things you really don't want to do? You know, oh, you don't want to get on the phone call with people? Okay, well now let's think about businesses that often require direct phone calls with customers. Oh, you don't want to provide 24-hour customer support? Okay, well, businesses that provide this sort of critical infrastructure, they often require 24-7 customer support. So let's avoid those businesses. And so you can kind of work backwards to the types of businesses that you want subconsciously by writing down this big list of things that you don't want. And that's important for two reasons. One, because it allows you to start parsing the world and making sense. If there's an information overload and you can't figure out your thesis, then you're just going to be spinning wheels because there's way too many businesses to look at if your parameters are business that is for sale. But B, the other benefit is that we have to remember, why are we here in the first place? Why is someone maybe possibly in some cases quitting their job, their day job to do something a little bit risky, like run a company? Well, why are they doing that? Well, because they want to be happy (laughs) or at least marginally, they want to be happier. They want to level up their lifestyle, level down their stress, decrease anxiety. There's a lot of things that go into this nebulous word happiness. And so if that's the case, if that's the context for someone switching careers and making this dramatic move, at the very least during step one of this process, we have to encourage them to not jump back into things they hate. So when someone has a day job doing customer support and hopping on the phone, it makes sense that they're going to write down on this list, I don't want to have a company that requires hopping on the phone. Well, now we've already made a big step forward and hopefully them finding a company that's going to not only become the new thing they do during the day, but become a source of new joy in their life because they're not doing the things they hate. So if you can't make that pivot from, let's say, working at a company to owning a company and have the pivot involve a reduction of things you hate and hopefully an increase in things you like, then I don't think you've really done it correctly. And on top of all of that, you're then not going to have that special advantage knowledge over your competitors. So you're doing everybody a disservice to sort of say like, here's what I do at my day job. Therefore, the company I buy should do the same thing. That's not exactly the right approach. And that's where writing that thesis, writing that thesis from an inverted perspective of what don't I want to do becomes, I think, really helpful. Yeah, it seems like it'd be a little bit of a mistake to jump from something that you really dislike in your day job to just replicating that again and having full responsibility for the business relying on that particular skill. Right. Well, and what's funny is that's what we do when we go from day job to day job. <laughs> is we're like, here's what I do at my day job. I hate it. So I need to find a new job. Let me make sure my new job basically looks the same as my current day job. Like that's this is something all humans do to ourselves. Like my current day job is this. Therefore, my new day job 
should also be that because or else I won't have relevant skills. It's like, well, then why are you even looking for a new job? You're just voluntarily putting yourself back in the same position. So there's kind of a balance we're trying to find where what are the things you can take with you that were those insights, that special knowledge? And what are the things that just for whatever reason with your personality didn't click? And if, if that's the case, it doesn't matter really if you were good at them because happiness happiness is a choice and you have to stop doing things you really hate, assuming you have enough skills to make up for it in, in the other areas. So like, for example, I'm, I think, quite good at business development. I'm quite good at going to meetings, having a great first impression, making people feel that they've known me for a while. I can get people to commit to big, you know, monthly recurring retainers in the space of a one-hour meeting without ever having met before. When I was in New York City for a couple years on and off, I was freelancing. I also did a, started an agency for a while. And my job in both cases quickly became like the Don Draper of our firm. And I'm not saying I was as cool as Don Draper, but day-to-day my lifestyle was going and entertaining clients. I was doing six, seven meetings a day in some cases. I had a couple go-to spots in Manhattan that I remember I would go and like have an 8 a.m. meeting and then leave and come back in so that my next meeting wouldn't think that I was already there. And by like the 10 a.m. meeting, I would be having a beer, like a Narragansett beer at the same place, Think Coffee and 14th Street. And they'd be like, what is going on? Because they didn't realize that I already had two coffee meetings prior. And I could just crush meetings. They could tell me a problem and I could come up with a creative solution. Like, what if we did, you know, because this is a sign of a good marketer. What if, wouldn't it be cool if blah, blah, blah. What if we did blah, blah, blah. And the client's eyes light up because no one's thought about their business the way that they have for months or whatever. And their wife's sick of hearing about it. I was very, very, very good at this. And I closed a lot of deals. But when I started buying companies, I also sat down and said, you know, I hate that. (laughs) I hate meetings. I hate coordinating. And I used that X.AI Amy tool for a while to help mitigate that pain. And I I tried all kinds of tricks and only doing meetings on Mondays and only doing calls and third. And I just hated it so much. So I said, like, I have to just say no to this, even though it's a profitable expression of my of my skill set, happiness is a choice. I'm not doing meetings anymore. Luckily, I was also okay at doing digital marketing and then I got into coding. So I had, that's what I mentioned. You have to have something to back it up, but you do not have to have this total martyrs lifestyle of like, this is what I'm good at. Therefore I must do it. I think you can channel that negative energy towards things and turn them into being good at something else. And, and that was sort of certainly what I did was like, didn't have a clue about coding, was really good at meetings, hated meetings, channeled that time and energy into moving to Thailand and learning to code. And now I don't do meetings. I do coding. I'm still good at meetings, but my life is better because I'm not doing the things that I don't like. So say you've got the thesis and you've secured an opportunity or you've you've found a target opportunity. Do you have any approach that you tend to use to quickly vet an opportunity before really drilling in deep? One great way, this might sound cliche, this is certainly something a lot of investors say, not buyers, but like venture capitalists will say, is the vibe you get from the creator, from the founder. And I think this is super important, not because we're actually going to work with them. You know, so we're not investing, the founder is going to go away. So in theory, it shouldn't matter what their vibe is. But I've found in our experience that depending on the vibe of the founder, that actually reflects on the code quality, that reflects on the sort of brand voice they had dealing with customer requests and complaints that reflects on their refund policy. And when we've found founders who have 
I don't really want to try to articulate in special words, but when they we find that they have a vibe that we really appreciate, where they seem to have a lot of integrity, they're very honest, they're not super hard-nosed about negotiating, and that's not to say they're bad at negotiating, but just that they see a bigger picture here and they have a, you know an abundance mindset about building companies and they're not treating this as their one and only baby. When we see those kind of characteristics, we already feel a little more relaxed and go into that diligence process with, I think, a more optimistic attitude because over time, when you look at a lot of different deals, you come across a lot of founders that have a very slimy persona and it seems that there's information they're not telling you, why are they selling? And you know, this is just how it is when you buy anything. You go buy a used car. You want to know, why are they selling it? <laughs> why are you selling this? It seems fine. And that's always going to be a question mark when you're buying something used that supposedly works well. It's like, well, why would you sell this if it's going well? It's, it's another one of these paradoxes you have to get through. But when a founder has a good vibe and their reason is like, you know, I just had a baby or I'm going to spend more time with family. Like these are very wholesome reasons that I can get behind. On the, on the flip side, we've talked to founders. It's like, why do you want to sell? It's like, well, I want to travel the world with my girlfriend. It's like, okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But that reason to me doesn't sound super valid, you know, because I've already done, like you can travel the world with your girlfriend and run the business. Like that's what it, that's what we call a digital nomad, an indie hacker for, for better or worse. There's people, you can get on planes and still be productive. So I don't really buy that reasoning. So those are some of the very early things we look for. Just the founder vibe, even though we're not going to actually work with them after the deal is over. Which actually leads me to one of the bigger questions I had, save it for the, for the podcast. When it comes to making a deal, what would you say is your advice here for people looking to buy a business? Well, yeah. So the, the words you just said, making a deal, you know, that there are people who are, who are good at talking. And then there's like people who get the deal done, you know, and that getting the deal done, it's only one or two extra steps, but these are the steps where most people seem to, to fail out, you know? So like doing your diligence, re- remaining convicted uh, night after night when you go to sleep and you're not having an exciting brainstorming conversation with your partners about this business you might have to sink all of your funds into and not make back break even for a few years. Like when all of that fades, the initial excitement, you have to still have a conviction that, you know, hey, in 24 months or 36 months or 48 months, we're going to still be running this business. It's still going to be going okay. And we're going to break even and it will turn into a cash cow at that point. And a lot of people, and we know this has been true since dawn of man, do not have the foresight to delay gratification that long. People cannot delay gratification more than like a few hours. You know, people live for the weekend because they can't delay gratification five days. So when you buy a company, this is the human nature element that you are up against is like, okay, everything's great. You have the skills. You're not really worried it's going to fail. There's not too many competitors. The, the, every, everything about the deal could be great. And I think a lot of people have found themselves in the situation. They do the sourcing. They do the, everything's great. And the, you know, the midnight hour before that signature, before that wire, they go, you know, the idea of working on something that even if it goes well, I will not break even for two, three, four years. I can't do it, you know, and then they back out. So that's where there's a lot of people who are, we just call them tire kickers, where everything about their process seems okay. They seem qualified. They have, they might have the funds. They might prove that they have the funds. 
And when it's finally time to get the deal done, send the money, get the passwords, get to work, they just can't do it. And I, I think it's a bummer because all of us are capable of being tire kickers. You know, so like there's this idea I keep saying, I've said a few times, I think on other interviews, it's like a lot of people will keep trying an entrepreneur is the one that keeps trying until it works. <laughs> and there, that distinction, keep trying over and over again and keep trying until it works is massive. It could mean one more try, right? So like, let's say I'm coding, you know, I will code until 6 a.m., whatever it takes to fix the bug, to get it working. Those keep trying attitudes compound over time where these tire kickers in a year, two, three, four years, when that sort of anniversary comes up and they would have broken even that month, right? Like even if they didn't grow the business, like, yeah, you know, it made five grand a month and today in history, two years later, I would have broken even and I'd have this $5,000 a month cash cow. They're going to be kicking themselves. And so I'm hoping that tire kickers are sort of a self-extincting species <laughs> because when you become this tire and you're a tire kicker the moment you reject a deal that is great in every way but because you don't delay gratification that's the moment you become a tire kicker and whenever that anniversary comes up that you would have broken even i hope it hits them very hard the regret because regret's a powerful tool at least for some of us to to avoid regret in the future and i hope tire kickers all sort of transform into deal makers and if they do that again we have this massive ripple effect win for society. The old founder gets compensated for their hard work. They're fueled up and fired up and motivated to maybe go solve another problem. You, the new operator who's hopefully doing a better job marketing, you are discouraging would-be entrepreneurs from tackling the same problems. They're going to all solve new problems. And then, of course, your own family is going to benefit in a couple of few years when you hit that break-even and you have a cash cow. Benefits are, are endless, but there's a huge distinction between these people who do everything right and those who actually get the deal done. And to actually get the deal done, you have to fight human nature's maybe greatest temptation, which is to delay gratification. Did you have any advice on structuring the deals and the contracts themselves? For example, you, you always try to get an asset sale, you always try to do an actual share sale, anything like this? Generally, we shoot for asset sales. There's just fewer moving pieces and things that can go wrong in terms of liabilities. When you do a share sale, basically you're doing that for the benefit of the seller, the original founder. I'm not really aware of any general benefits to, to a buyer when you do a share sale. Maybe a little bit of convenience. So if they have a bunch of accounts and banks and things that are tied together, when you do a share sale, you can sort of keep things as is. You don't have to ruffle up the dust. So for example, we just bought a company called Merge Freeze. It's a GitHub app. And GitHub, of course, is owned by Microsoft. And Microsoft has a lot of different compliance and surveys and security questionnaires you have to get through to have a GitHub app because they are Microsoft and they have those sort of strict requirements. So since we did an asset sale, you know, we had to do everything over again. We had to go back through their compliance. That meant another month of the original founder being paid, not us. So we had to do like a true up with him you know, separately. That meant that, hey, we exposed ourselves to maybe not being accepted by Microsoft and having our app kicked off because maybe we don't comply with the latest security parameters that they complied with two years ago when the app was, was founded. So that did introduce risks for us because we did an asset sale. But generally, the risk is greater to the, the buyer when you do a share sale. And the reason you do the share sale is probably for some sort of tax motive motivation for the seller. 
So we've done this before. We bought CrossSell in the UK. The founder said, look, like it needs to be a share sale. I've talked to my accountant and that's better for me. So we got it done that way. We're in the middle of selling one of our other portfolio projects at Fork right now. It will be a share sale. But nine times out of 10, we've on the buying and selling side done an asset sale. And I think this also lets you get a little bit leaner with the valuation as a buyer. You know, you, because you get to say, look, we're not buying all of these sort of conveniences. We're not buying a business in a box. We are going to have to reset up all of our compliance and reintegrate Stripe and migrate all the accounts and write an API script that re-instantiates subscriptions, you know, because Stripe won't redo subscriptions for you. All they'll do is transfer customer objects. So there are a lot of new administrative tasks you take on when you do an asset sale. But what that means is if you're willing to do that, you can sort of get rewarded in that sense when it comes to the valuation. And likewise, the seller you know, they just give you a, a sheet of passwords. They don't really have to give you stuff that's tied to their identity, which I find is is a benefit for them. Because frankly, you're still strangers. You know, you're doing business together and hopefully everything goes well. But it's really doesn't really, it's not really in the best interest of either side for you to now own a bank account that has their social security number or whatever formerly tied to it. It's just kind of sticky. So generally we recommend an asset sale. In terms of some of the other aspects of structure, it's definitely on a case-by-case basis, but some of the things that we always do at Fork that I've done, what, five, six times in the last two, three months alone, looking at deals and making offers is I show them all of my math. So I let them know during the early stage of questioning, hey, we're going to make an offer. So this sort of encourages them to keep answering our questions. We're not trying to be coy and get all of the data and then decide. If we feel good about it, we say, hey, look, we're going to make an offer. Here's a few more questions. Well, now they put in an extra effort, you know, into answering those questions. And then when we do make the offer, I always, always make it a commentable Google sheet. And I say, hey, here's my offer. Here's a link to my math. So you can see how I got there. And I'll, you know, take a multiple and subtract expenses and do another multiple and sometimes add line items for goodwill or brand or assets they might have in addition to the revenue multiple and looking forward to your decision. And that's sort of how I've sent at least four or five offers in the last few months. You know, every component there is is very important. And I'm shooting myself in the foot here a little bit because I might be getting listened to by a future person we buy from. But even our sign-off, here's my offer, kind of option A, option B, more money up for less money up front or more money over time, looking forward to your decision. And this, this implies that there's, this is my final offer. (laughs) But obviously all of us who have ever bought anything, who have ever bought anything, know that an asking price is 99% of the time, not the the final price. You know, you're going to, it could be higher actually, but it's probably not final. But when you send someone to deal terms and say, like, let me know what you think. Well, now you've already begun the process of negotiating against yourself. You're already communicating almost explicitly, but at least between the lines that, hey, I'm not even sure about this. And maybe I'm willing to pay you more. But, you know, again, back to human nature and delaying gratification, this is a huge deal for you, right? Like, they are getting all the gratification as the seller. You are fighting human nature and delaying gratification, So to kick yourself even more with these sort of frilly one-liners, like looking forward to your thoughts, it's like you deserve to not make all of your money back as soon as you should. The seller is now going to get a bigger, better payday because you are not willing to be bold and feel a little uncomfortable in this one very, very critical moment. You know, like, so like day to day, I think of myself as a very reasonable 
person. I, I let myself get taken advantage of by people. I, you know, I let people in in the highway that, sh- you know, should go in behind me. Right. But when I'm trying to buy a company, it is, here's my offer looking forward to your decision. You have to be able to put on sort of, let's just call them your big boy pants. Sorry, women. That's the, that's the term and be bold and have some conviction because that's what all of this is about. It's about having conviction. Who do you think you are that you can buy a company and run it better than the original founder who has the special knowledge? That takes conviction to be in that position. So if you kick off this process of like a two, three, four, five years of needing conviction with a conviction list, really let me know your thoughts, you're going, that's going to compound like all these other things we're talking about. Everything compounds into you being potentially not as successful as as you should be with this company. So make your offer, tell them looking forward to your decision. The really savvy ones out there, the sellers will will give you a counter, but not always. You know, I've said this before to people and it backfires. They say, oh, you know, no, <laughs> this isn't going to work. And, I, and then I say, now I kind of have to lean in and say, okay, do you have a counter? And they say, no, we can't even make a counter. We're not even in the ballpark. It's like, okay. Well, that's because of how I did, you know, I did that to myself. I said, looking forward to your decision. I didn't say, let me know what you think. But I think more times than not doing it, I don't want to say doing it my way, but doing the way I just described, which is not unique to us, is going to be a little bit better for you and hopefully for the for the seller too. Because what really sucks when you're buying and selling anything, cars, collectibles, businesses, is buyer's remorse and seller's remorse, right? So if you say to the seller, how much do you want? And they say, 10 bucks for this baseball card. And you say, done. Well, now immediately the seller feels horrible. (laughs) On one hand, they got exactly what they wanted, right? They got to propose a price. They got the price they wanted. But now they suddenly realize that they could have maybe asked for more. And so there's, there's definitely an art and a science to this, you know, when it comes to like accepting a price that you're okay with, but giving it some time and thought. So like, we, we had this before where we sold the project and the guy offered us, I'll give you this. And I was an idiot at the time. This was like five years ago. And I just said, great, done. And I did that because I, I thought, hey, we're going to get this done quickly and this will be nice and easy. But I realized that I, I caused maybe irreversible damage <laughs> to that buyer's psyche for a while. And actually several months later, they offered to sell it back to us for like a fraction of the price. So I think in that moment, I convinced unconsciously this buyer that they were overpaying, even though I just agreed to what they wanted to buy it for. I didn't try to nego. So it actually would have been better for all of us if I said maybe this much, you know, I should have just added 5% arbitrarily. And then they would have felt like, oh, you know, know, he could counter back adding 2%. And now everybody would win and they would have that conviction, again, that, that word that they need to take the business to the next level. But instead, they bought a project from someone who immediately agreed to their first price. And now the conviction on day one wasn't there. How are you going to get that back? Unless it's part of a, a sneaky tactic to try and get them to sell it back to you in a couple months' time. <laughs> it doesn't sound like that's something you want to be doing. Yeah, but you know, these are just two, two anecdotes that just go to show like how many little factors go into, I guess, the deal-making process. And all of this is very elementary, you know, like a middle school, this is middle school or comprehension in terms of basic human psychology. But in those critical moments, you really have to pay attention or you're not going to get the deal you want. And that's as a buyer or a seller. Interesting tie back to what you mentioned before as part of your skill set as a marketer. 
is being able to empathize, which actually mm. carries over into the deal making stage, probably somewhere that a lot of people don't really expect a marketing skill set to be helpful. So say someone has gone through the process, they've gone through the nego- negotiation, they may or may not have used the technique that you described, and they finally bedded down the project and it's theirs. How do they go about making it flourish? And and I would add something to that. It's how do they go about making it flourish when they have multiple projects at the same time? Because I know that's something that's fairly unique to you from what I've seen is that you have quite a lot of projects on at the same time. It really starts with your personal goals because when you buy a company, that doesn't really necessarily mean that you need to make it better. <laughs> we, we do keep talking about this and, and our process at Fork is to get in there and essentially do a makeover. And we, we kind of have a, a branded name for it, this three-step makeover. But that is neither necessary nor sufficient to being successful as someone who buys a company. The bottom line, if you can afford to wait out the payback period of an acquisition, you have a successful investment, right? So like, and there's a, there's a ton that goes into that. What does that even mean? It doesn't just mean two years. That could mean like, is this company going to be relevant in two years, right? And if it's not, well, now you can't just sit on it. But if you buy a company, let's say you buy a, a car wash, right? In my small understanding of how cars work and why cars look better when they're washed, a car wash is not really something that's in a threat of being made obsolete by any type of technology anytime soon, right? And so you buy a car wash, waiting out that payback period means now you have a cash cow and you have a successful business. You, who says you have to pressure wash the, the driveway and change pricing and introduce SaaS subscriptions and hire girls in bikinis to stand on the roof and dance on Saturdays? Like, you could do all of that, but you don't necessarily have to, to have a success, to be a successful operator of an acquisition. So it, it really starts with your goals. For us, we started with this idea of kind of treating everything as a turnaround of like, here's the flaws. We're going to fix it, improve it, get it to its full potential and then sell it. And so far we've done that a few times, but nowadays I'm finding it to be a little more interesting. These sort of like buy and hold, basically hold forever type businesses and we have one or two in our portfolio that are like that right now. One is called Labaloo.com. It does invoicing for florists, basically for like event planning. So if I'm going to provide flowers for your wedding and I need to give you a PDF quote with, with images of example flowers, they use our tool to make those quotes. And uh, at first we thought, hey, we're buying it from someone who doesn't, isn't a tech person. They're a florist. So they have that special knowledge that was injected into the DNA of the product. We can apply our special knowledge of marketing and sales and and grow it a lot and then sell it maybe to a larger competitor. Turned out we did grow it maybe 200, 300%, but it's now been like four years we've had this. It's pretty flat now. It just has predictable revenue, predictable churn, doesn't need any new features, happy customers. And I've had to come to terms with realizing like this is just a great asset to hold. We don't have to sell it. We don't have to grow it. We don't have to, you know, aggressively invest anymore in development or whatever. So we've installed a person to do day-to-day customer service and, and sales and tweak our ad campaigns and things like that. And it's just a set it and forget it project. And this project, if you look at our, you know, monthly distribution of profit after paying for this other person, we've made many times over our, our initial investment in January 2018 when we bought it. And it is just a money, literally a money printing machine. And I think that should be the goal of when you want to buy multiple projects. You don't have to, you know, turn them all into 5X 
you know, case studies where you buy and sell it in the span of a year. You definitely can do that. And if you're raising, if you're financing deals with other people's money, you sort of need to do that. <laughs> That's probably going to be in your pitch that, you know, we're going to take your money and here's going to be your IRR and all of that over time. But when you're using your own money or you have a structure set up with investors where maybe they get monthly distributions and profits and things like that, you can unsubscribe from that narrow way of thinking and say, we're just going to, we're, we're in the business actually of buying and building money printing machines. And when you do it like that, when you have something like Lobaloo that takes really no internal team effort, you know, once a month we, we do accounting, we look at Stripe, we look at how much we paid this person, we subtract the two numbers, that's our profit, we wire it to ourselves. <laughs> it's literally a money printing machine. When you have that, well, now you can afford with your, your brain space, your time, as well as your actual resources to do that over and over again. So that's how we've been able to, I think, build a portfolio of multiple somewhat dissimilar projects is because we tried, we tried to make it very efficient, the operations of each one. But if each of our projects was sort of like our FOMO project, where we have full-time staffs, we're always innovating, we're always launching new features, we're always trying to keep an edge above the competition, we're always trying to stay relevant, and you know we're, we're attending to like Twitter and doing social media and writing blog posts. When you're really running a business like that, growth-minded, aggressively reinvesting into product, well, now I don't, you know, I don't think our portfolio could afford to have five FOMOs. Even if we had unlimited capital, we just wouldn't have the brain space to do that. There's be, there'd be too much context switching as well to go from thinking about Shopify B2B marketing apps to then thinking about, let's say Lobaloo was sort of like FOMO where we were always going to, I don't know, floral trade shows and conventions. There's just regardless of the time of the day, regardless of capital, there's too much going on in your brain to context switch. So it really starts with your goals. But for us, we figure you know, life is long. It feels a lot better to have monthly income than to just sell a company and then twiddle your thumbs for a year or two and wonder if you can do it again. So we're in this state now where at any given moment, let's say five, six, seven portfolio projects, one or two are in current, currently in payback mode. One or two we're kind of considering selling and one or two are kind of funding daily operations and they've hit that cash cow payback mark. And if you keep doing that, then that allows you to compound over time where, you know, even a couple months ago, we bought merge freeze. We used profits from other projects to buy merge freeze. Merge freeze will pay itself back in like 22 months. And 22 months from now, we'll be very, very happy that we parlayed profits into buying merge freeze instead of distributed it to ourselves. So all goes down to your goals, the longevity of your, of your portfolio, we've sort of decided, let's just keep doing this. So we're actually about to relaunch kind of Fork 2.0, Fork Equity 2.0. We're going to have a new site, new branding. This is the first time I'm mentioning any of this. And we're going to have a new focus. We're going to have a new thesis. We're going to bring on new team members. I'm recruiting right now. So I'm super excited about it. And it took running Fork for five years to, to do our own meta pattern matching and realize, okay, how do we actually want to run our fund. What types of businesses do we really want to, you know, hold long term and maybe never sell? And you know, again, realizing life is very long. I'm, I'm 32. I could, even if I did this for eight more years and I was 40 and I stopped working, that would be a lifetime. Given I've only been, been working eight years, nine years so far to begin with. Yeah, fantastic. So just to tie off that last question, I suppose the answer lies in having the two factors. One is knowing what your target is. If you're targeting a 510x opportunity you're not going to be able to handle multiples of the same 
type of product at the same time with lots of context switching, a lot of brain power required. But if it is a fairly self-contained, low complexity product, then you're going to have a much easier time to be able to handle multiple opportunities of the same type. Would that be right? That's right. I think so. And I, and I also think it's about knowing yourself. You know, I get asked a lot, Ryan, how do you do so many things? And they're not necessarily saying, how do you, I don't know, work a lot of hours of the day. A lot of us do that at, at exactly one job. People are more, people seem to be more interested in how do you switch between lots of things. And through that observation, I've realized that maybe it's not so normal to be able to switch between lots of things. And that's sort of maybe a muscle as well that you have to, you have to exercise and you have to only exercise that by doing it, by saying nine to noon, I'm going to work on this noon to four, I'm going to work on this totally different business with different team and code base and whatever. If you do that over time, you become good at it, but you don't have to become good at it. So I don't want to explicitly encourage someone, anyone to have a portfolio of disparate dissimilar projects. But I would say like you just recapped, if you think that would be kind of interesting, then a framework for how to go about it would be to be careful with the ambitions you place on each of those projects. I definitely could not do five FOMO simultaneously, but we could do like 10 Lobaloos simultaneously. Yeah. Fantastic. Two questions just before we wrap up. Second last question is, you somewhat answered it previously. But in terms of getting people in to take over the day-to-day operations, did you have any advice for people who are looking to to buy something and hold it for the revenue? Well, first of all, if, if your idea is to, in my opinion, if your idea is to buy something and immediately inject someone to take over the day-to-day, then what you're really saying is that your skill is recruiting and building teams, which I've, I would question. <laughs> <laughs> Because if that's already your skill, then why aren't you already an operator recruiting and building teams? I think a lot of people getting into this go from employee to operator, in which case you have virtually no experience recruiting and building teams. You were the team. You were the person who was recruited. So if that's the case, I don't know how big of a a competitive advantage you're going to have if on day one you want to bring in a bunch of people to do it. And, you know, this is common for people who are starters as well. Developers, they say, I can code. That's all I want to do. I'm going to raise money and immediately hire salespeople. And it often doesn't work. You know, as a founder, you pretty much need to be that first salesperson. And that includes operators too. Operators of second second time Passover businesses. Just because we buy a company that used to have a founder who was a salesperson doesn't mean I get to not do sales. I also need to go through that same process of, you know, hearing from the horse's mouth, the customer, what the challenges are. And through that process, I find opportunities. Oh, we could actually price it this way or whatever. So I would caution against people who say, I want to buy companies and immediately install a team. I don't know how you'll by default be any better at running that company than the previous founder, if that's your goal. I think you have to put in some time to run it yourselves. There are a lot of people out there with what I would call a chip on their shoulder in a good way, where they are looking to prove themselves in one skill or another. And you can identify them at that critical sort of juncture in their life. And what that means practically is that you get them for below market rate and they do a great job for you. And I think we've done a pretty good job at that, whether it's with some of the developers we've recruited, with some of the marketers we've recruited. These are people where on day one, we already knew they weren't going to be with us forever. They had a bright future, but they were willing to sort of have us be one of their stepping stones and one of their references. And, you know, I try to be a a cool person to work with. All of that goes together where 
You can get awesome talent that sort of gifts you their time and their abilities for a short period, helps you get that project to the next level, helps you manage your pocketbook in doing so, also gives them a win. You know, they can step in and say, I grew this business you know, 50X or whatever, and then they can step onto the next business. So it's a very transactional kind of context. But when you can find those people, and I think you can find them on Twitter and elsewhere through blogging, that's a great way to start doing that high leverage activity of hiring people to do unique, specialized components of a business and operating it without totally killing your pocketbook. But to try to assume that you can do that on day one, that's more of a... I think that takes a few more years, a few years of experience to get there. You know, I think even at Fork, we've done it once or twice, where on day one, we installed an engineer in support. I never touched the code. I never did a ticket and the business went well. That was like once or twice ever. And it was like my, that was like my symphony, you know, where it was culminating every skill and every temptation and every pattern I've ever found into like, okay, I'm going to run this business differently. I'm going to be I'm not going to operate. I'm not going to be the train conductor. I'm going to be the owner of the train tracks and I'm going to hire a conductor. And I was able to do that once or twice, but there's no way I would have been able to do that with our first, second, third or fourth, you know, acquisition. It takes a lot of time to mature that recruitment and, and team building skill, especially if you're coming out of a, a regular employment situation. Perfect. All right. Last question for people who want to learn more about you and Fork Equity, where should they go? Head over to my website. It's just ryancolp.com. I blog there once or twice a month about marketing, a little bit about lately crypto, a little bit of everything, but basically lifestyle design, entrepreneurship, leadership. You can also check out our portfolio, forkequity.com. And if this conversation has been interesting and you're um, curious about buying a small company and seeing how you would do as a grower, I encourage you to check out microacquisitions.com. We have over a thousand students and we have a forum community that's student only. We're constantly adding new material lectures. We send monthly newsletters. So I'm really proud of what we've put together at Microacquisitions. And you'll find a bunch of other like-minded people who are also buying and growing and selling small companies. Perfect. I'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes. So, so everybody can have a look at the article that comes after this. Otherwise, Ryan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben.